Welcome to Good Faith Stories from Good Faith Media. I'm Starlet Thomas, your host for our fourth episode. In each episode of Good Faith Stories, we'll bring you several stories tied to a theme, unique and true stories as told by the people who live them. Each story is short, just a few minutes long, and accompanied by music. You might laugh, cry, get angry, remember, but we hope you'll think a lot and feel even more about what it means to be human. Our storytellers are people of faith, good faith we'd say, but on Good Faith Stories, you won't hear testimonies or sermons. No, you're going to hear stories, real people telling you, this happened to me. this episode, we're going to share some stories about hospitals. Each of our four stories in this episode takes place, at least partially, in a hospital. Loss, comfort, surprise, sadness, happiness, we can find the range of human emotion and experience in hospitals. In them, we find faith, hope, and love. Our first story in this episode comes from Rabbi Jack Moline. He told a story, the death of Christian, in our very first episode. Now he's back and he tells a hair's breadth. I used to think that the expression, his life was saved by a hair's breadth, was just a metaphor. My son is in his 30s now. But when he was barely one year old, my wife noticed on one hot summer night that one of his chubby little toes had a deep indentation around it. We called a friend who is a podiatrist, and he worried that a hair had gotten wrapped around it. He suggested we put our son to bed for the night and bring him into the office in the morning. Later that night, I received a call from Harold, a member of our synagogue. Another member of our community, Art, had suffered a stroke and was not expected to last the night. Could I come to the bedside? Art, himself a doting grandfather, was on his back, eyes wide open but unresponsive, breathing fitfully. His family was distraught. We said some prayers, and the family waited for the morning visits from the doctors. Morning came, and sure enough, there was a hair around my son's toe, and it had to be removed lest it eventually squeeze off the blood supply and endanger his foot. But the doctor did not have the high magnification glasses and surgical tools needed to remove it. So we were sent to the emergency room where a plastic surgeon would take care of the situation. We arrived mid-morning, but a baby with a hair around his toe was a lower level emergency than most of the people who came in that day. We waited past noon and eventually our son fell asleep in my wife's arms. Having been told the surgeon would not be available for at least an hour, I decided to run up to Art's room and check in because we were in the same hospital. When I got to Art's room, his family was there. During the night, the nurses had used surgical tape to close his eyes 
and more tape secured the ventilator in his mouth. All that was visible was his nose and his cheeks. Most of the people in the room were taking turns speaking soothingly to Art, telling him they loved him and offering comfort. Only his adult son, Warren, was quiet, not given to expressing his emotions verbally. The doctors arrive and discuss the do not resuscitate order Art had authorized years earlier. The time had arrived and the family consented. As the doctor began to reach for the controls of the ventilator, I asked if it might be possible to remove the tape on his face so that the family could see their loved one a last time as they remembered him. After the tape was removed from his eyes, the doctor took his pocket flashlight and went to pull up an eyelid to see if there was any response. But Art resisted, squeezing his eyelid against the doctor's pressure. The doctor wondered aloud if it was just a reflex and then turned back to the ventilator. And that is when God spoke to me. God put these words in my mouth because I surely did not think of them myself. God said to say to Warren, the silent son, that he should tell his father to open his eyes. So I did. Warren said, Dad, open your eyes. Art opened his eyes. The doctor jumped back. It's a miracle, he said. As long as you're willing to use that word, I replied, I won't argue. Art made a modest recovery, enjoying many months under the care and attention of his family and friends before death paid a final visit in much gentler circumstances. When I returned to the ER that afternoon, the plastic surgeon was just arriving and our son was squirming. In 10 minutes, the hair was off his toe. We then left that hospital, having been sent by a hair's breadth. That was Rabbi Jack Moline, president of the Interfaith Alliance. Moline is a Chicago native and the Rabbi Emeritus of Agudas Achim Congregation in Alexandria, Virginia. Our next story comes from Tim Willis, who takes us to Texas and the mid-1980s. He tells Medicine Man. My beeper buzzed. I was in the office. I was about to head home. I got the number, called it. The nurse's voice had great consternation and urgency, and I knew I needed to get to the hospital right away. It was the fall of 1984. I was the hospital chaplain with the Corps of Chaplains at the University of Texas Medical Branch, where I also served as the campus minister to the medical community. As I arrived at the nurse's station, she said, Chaplain Willis, we've got a situation here and I don't know what to do. So I asked her to tell me what was going on and she said, we have a Native American woman at the end of the hall, the last door on the left. Her husband and son are here 
and she has just passed away. I think they're of the Caddo Indian tribe in East Texas. Galveston was an indigent hospital. She had been transported there very ill. Well, I asked the nurse, I said, well, what, what's your concern? And she said, well, the husband and son won't let us into the room to take care of her body or let the coroner come in. They said they wanted a medicine man to be able to reconnect her spirit to the great spirit beyond. I told him I didn't have a medicine man, but all we had was a chaplain on call, and he said that would be okay. She said, can you handle this? And I said, I'll give it my best shot. I started to head down the hall, and I realized I don't know what I'm going to do. I mean, chaplains aren't don't proselytize, and were there to comfort and console, but they wanted a medicine man, and I was just a chaplain. I was thinking as I walked down the hall, what am I going to do? And then I had this moment of inspiration. It was the summer before my senior year in high school. My home church took a mission trip to a Navajo reservation mission about 60 miles from Cuba, New Mexico, little Torreon. The mission was headed up by Pastor David, a blind Navajo pastor. I don't remember much about that week, but I do remember that he taught us how to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus in Navajo. I couldn't remember much of the song at all, but I remembered a little bit of the chorus. I paused before I knocked on the door and I thought to myself, I sure hope they don't understand Navajo. So I was gonna give it my best shot. They welcomed me in and I told them, I said, I'm here to help and bring comfort. I expressed my condolences with their loss. And I said, I want you to help me do something. I stood at the foot of the bed and I asked the husband to stand on one side of the bed and the son to stand on the other, to lift one hand in the air and to, with the other hand to grab the hand of their loved one. I looked up and I began to chant in Navajo these words that I could remember. And then I said, Now, great spirit, embrace the spirit of this woman as she returns to you. There is love and gratitude in this room for the life she lived, and there is deep sadness at her departure but we know that she is welcome back to be with you, O Great Spirit. I stood in silence. And then I said to her two loved ones, I said, her spirit has departed, and now you can go with her love and memories in your heart and in your mind from this time forward. I said, look, I know I'm not the medicine man you requested, but I hope that maybe today I have brought some comfort 
to you in this moment of loss. I expressed my heartfelt condolences again, and before I could head out the door, they both grabbed my hands and began to shake it vigorously and, and to thank me profusely for being there and helping out. They then told me that I could tell the nurse that to start the process of removing her body. I arrived at the nurse's station and I told them that everything was okay and that they could proceed on. The nurse said, Chaplain, I don't know what you did, but I'm deeply indebted to you for this. I responded by saying, well, it helped that I remembered a little bit of Navajo from many years ago. But I told her, I said, if I'm going to be a medicine man, I'm going to need to brush up on my Native American vocabulary and rituals. Her smile was one of gratitude and relief. As I turned to leave, she exclaimed, Oh, well, just another day on the reservation. And I grinned and said, That was Tim Willis, a retired campus minister and chaplain. He lives in Clemson, South Carolina, where he is the voice of the Clemson University Tiger Band. I'm Starlet Thomas. We'll be right back with more Good Faith Stories. I'm Jenna. I'm Ashley. And we are Reverends. Revs on the road. Hop in the car with us and come along for the ride. As we step out of the pulpit and see what God is up to in the world. We're not leaving the church. We're just finding it in all kinds of beautiful places. Revs on the Road, a podcast from Good Faith Media. We travel the country. From the comfort of our place in Dallas for now. And catch up with beautiful people doing God's work advocating for disability rights, healing from church hurt and spiritual abuse, promoting mental health and the power of community, integrating spirituality and art, working for racial justice, and so much more. We've got red light rants, pit stops, and detours. Faith is a journey, and we're on it. So ride along with us. The Revs. On Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Revs on the Road. I'm Jenna. And I'm Ashley. We're Revs on the Road, a podcast from Good Faith Media. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Stories from Good Faith Media. I'm Starlet Thomas, your host for this episode. Today, we're hearing stories that involve hospitals, true stories told by the people who live them, stories about those places we go for healing and for help, and the people we find there. This next story comes from attorney Jonathan Cross in Birmingham, Alabama. Now, an important word to our listeners. The following story is one not often told, and it recounts in some detail an incident of sexual violence, reproductive rights, and more. So we advise listener discretion. This story involves law, love, and life itself. And it involves a trip to a hospital. Jonathan tells only one thing left. Tell me the most interesting case you've handled. 
That's a question I'm often asked as a career prosecutor who specialized in violent crime. There's been many, and it's hard to answer. I will tell you one of the more interesting cases. It's a crime that's hard to define. was the mid-1990s. Jane and John were 20-somethings and in love. Jane was smitten. She dreamed of marriage, a house, a two-car garage, children, and a happy home. Sure enough, Jane and John became victims of their passion. Carried away in reckless abandon, Jane got pregnant. She had mixed emotions, but she was thrilled and confident the child was meant to be. John, on the other hand, wasn't so excited, and many heated conversations between the two of them ensued. It was unlike John to argue, and he was generally meek and kind. Jane thought the pregnancy was a divine sign that it was time for them to marry and give birth to their miracle. John just didn't think they were ready. After several weeks of debating, each became entrenched in their perspective and an intention. With or without John, Jane was going to have the child. So John figured there was only one thing left for him to do. He invited Jane over to his place one evening. He had big plans to make up and make Jane happy. The romantic evening started with John making drinks and grilled cheese sandwiches. They ate, and John explained he didn't want to fight anymore, and he wanted nothing but Jane's happiness. They kissed and retired to the bedroom. In the bedroom, they rekindled their passion, with John taking her clothes off, kissing and touching her all over. As she lay on the bed, Jane was happy for the first time in a while. She enjoyed John's affection and attention. Until something didn't feel right, unlike anything she'd ever felt before. John continued kissing, touching, and probing, but it felt awkward, felt odd, and the odd feeling persisted. Jane excused herself to the bathroom. In the bathroom, she removed seven pills from her vagina. She was shocked, but Jane had the wherewithal to keep the pills and dump them into her purse. She dressed and left abruptly, refusing to talk as John pleaded for her to stay. After leaving, she immediately went to the local emergency room. There, Jane explained to the attending physician what had happened and that she was pregnant. The seven pills were examined and could be identified by sight because the pills had not dissolved much. The seven pills were Cytotec, a drug that will cause an abortion by causing uterine contractions. Another drug, Mufepristone, causes vaginal cramps and bleeding. The 
combination of Cytotec and Mufepristone is 97% effective in terminating an early pregnancy. The attending physician ordered blood work and sure enough, some way or another, Jane had been administered Mufepristone, but she had no idea how. Local detectives were called and began their investigation. Detectives came to believe John had laced Jane's grilled cheese sandwich or drink that evening with Mufepristone. Cytotec and Mufepristone are controlled substances and must be prescribed. I should have told you earlier, John was a pharmacist. Within a week, Jane had a miscarriage. Her pregnancy aborted. Now, as the prosecutor handling the case, I had to ask, based on the evidence in the law, what is the most serious provable crime? I've reviewed the evidence, met with the detectives, and Jane several times. At the time of this case, the mid-1990s, state law did not recognize an unborn fetus as a victim of murder. Any crime committed was only committed against Jane, and state law limited such charges to assault. The detectives did a good job investigating the case, but there was a proof issue. There is no doubt John inserted Cytotec pills or laced Jane's food or drink with Mufepristone. The issue was causation. The pills were removed before they dissolved and the dose of Mufepristone in Jane's blood may have caused the abortion or injury, but the expert testimony was conflicting. Nevertheless, we charged and convicted John of assault. Years later, and made effective in 2006, this state's law was amended so that an unborn child could be a victim of a murder, but the law would not change John's conviction because it was final. So what did John do to Jane, to the unborn child? What was the real crime? The actual injury, the cause of death, the end of life, of love? God only knows. Jonathan Cross, a career prosecutor in Alabama with almost 30 years of experience. Our final story comes from Jeremy Kays in California. He tells Marlboro Miracle.
It sounded more like level five of Galaga. Bells and whistles alarming intermittently to the key of B-flat. Yet the hiss of ventilators reminded me how far I was from the arcade. Some five hours earlier, a mother had slammed the accelerator to the floor, pressing a rusty old astrovan with every hope, prayer, and force of will to leave the lights of Las Vegas, a blur in her rear view. Now her van coughed its way into a parking space, a mere 25 yards from glass doors parting like the sea before Moses. It's where her daughter was dumped the night before, like trash, unconscious, faint pulse, track marks like ladybugs. There beneath the probing fluorescence, I stood in the ICU surrounded by a family I'd never met in front of a girl I didn't know. The hospital mattress kept busy breathing in and out every ten minutes. It felt like our hope. Bloodshot eyes, puffy and swollen, looked to me expectantly. So I fumbled through crinkly pages of promises until I found one that might work. I prayed. A day later, the mother who floored her astrovan across the desert cried on the phone. Between her pregnant pauses for drags and marlboros, I gathered that her daughter was still tangled in the kelp of cords and the mountain range of her heart rate still pushed 80 to 100 BPM. But the prognosis sounded grim. Our conversation, it consisted of baptism and death. Sorry, can't baptize her if she's unconscious. That has to be her choice in our tradition. Theological tradition sounds silly leaving my lips when her daughter is dying. So here's what I'll do. I'll anoint her. You know, in the ancient world, people would anoint weary travelers for refreshment. I came armed with olive oil and more crinkly pages of promises. Nitro gloves, a three-ply face mask, and a disposable surgical gown were supposed to keep me safe from catching her MRSA, the contagious bacteria she acquired in the hospital, or even more likely from communal needles, recycled, reused, second time, third time, who knew? The oil shone emerald in my lavender-colored palms and spilled down her forehead, staining the throwaway pillowcases. I prayed, I read, I said a lot of in the name of Jesus's. Then the fear of hopelessness set in, and with it the awkwardness of nurses passing by. They must wonder, why is he oiling her up for a trip to the morgue? In the cacophony of arcade games and serpentine hiss of ventilators, I began to pray with my guts, with a new force slamming the accelerator to the floor until something like lightning left my fingertips. It, it just went out, energy, force, I don't know. It was hard to breathe, 
beneath the layers of disposable clothes with beads of sweat percolating through. So I said goodbye to the girl with the ladybugs and closed the glass isolation door behind me. And it wasn't until two or three days later that the phone rang. I braced myself. I figured that my knowing next to nothing about this girl would prove to be a lackluster funeral sermon. Through uh, coughing fits and popping drags of her marlboros, her mother said, My daughter's being discharged tomorrow. She'd love to meet you. That was Jeremy Kay's teaching pastor at Journey the Church in Camarillo, California. He's currently working on a doctor of ministry at Duke Divinity School. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at jkays. That's J-A-K-A-Y-S. You've been listening to Good Faith Stories from Good Faith Media. I'm Starlet Thomas. We at Good Faith Media know there's always more to tell, and everyone has a story. What's your story? We love to hear it and help you share it. Contact us at goodfaithmedia.org or get in touch directly with our producer, Cliff Vaughn. Email him at cliff at goodfaithmedia.org. Make sure you subscribe to Good Faith Stories to get our next episode as soon as it drops. And check out all of our podcast offerings and more at goodfaithmedia.org. And if you like what you heard, give us a good rating and tell your friends. Thanks for listening. <laughs>